You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Rob Carver, Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are, of course, intended to keep you focused, inspired and motivated to continue your rules-based investing journey. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger some level of curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to past episodes that you may have missed. Rob Moritz, great to be back with you this week. How are things where you are? How are you doing? Yeah, doing well. It's a bit wet and soggy here in, in uh, sun, not very sunny England, so... Been quite funny. I've been setting up meetings with people and and uh, saying, yeah, it's uh, going to be at three p.m. British summer time, but it doesn't feel like summer here. That's for sure. <laughs> hey guys, I'm fine. Weather is improving, and uh, nothing to really complain about. So uh, all good. Very good. Very good indeed. So I mean, just as a quick summary, as we always do, uh, it was a bit of a crazy week, certainly in U.S. politics, with of course the presidential election debate, which I don't think we need to talk about. And of course, now with Donald Trump and the first lady contracting the coronavirus and this morning, Trump apparently has been hospitalized. So with that, U.S. stocks came a little bit under pressure yesterday following the news with a slight down day. But for the week, it actually managed to put in about 2% advance and is still up for the year, about 4% if we look at the S&P. Grains uh, were firmer for the week, as was the metals. Energy took a bit of a hit, and bonds and the U.S. dollar were slightly soft. Now, in the news, just a couple of things that might uh, inspire some conversations uh, later on today, but I couldn't help to notice what's going on with this, the small trader call buyer index. So this group, as a percentage of total volume, pushed to 46% during the week of January 17th of this year. And that was actually the highest reading since October of 2007, where it registered 47%. And of course, we know that that call buying levels in October 2007 did coincide precisely with the beginning of a 54% decline in the Dow Jones. And of course, in our case, less than a week after that recording in January of this year, the Dow hit a closing high of about 29,550 on February 12th, and of course, subsequently experienced the steepest decline from an all-time high on record. So last month, during the week ending September 4th, which does include the day where the Dow made its latest high, the small trader call buying index pushed up to 53% of total volume, and that surpasses both the prior record of 2000 and of 2007. So maybe this little indicator is some kind of a precursor of what may follow once we have the U.S. elections past us. But it wasn't just in the call buying area that we saw some interesting numbers and extremes. In fact, if you look at the U.S. IPO market, August actually reached a new extreme 
with 43 offerings, the most since August of 2000, which of course was the last high in the greatest IPO boom in history. And um, just to uh, round that off, the Wall Street Journal actually described that wave of new IPOs only a few days ago with a headline, IPO market parties like it's 1999. So there we have it. Some uh, some flashback to uh, to the last, or not the last necessarily, but uh, one of the bubbles. Any bubbles going on in your uh, performance, uh, Moritz, this week? Or maybe it's a computer bubble? <laughs> yeah, computer bubble. Uh, I haven't run the numbers yet, but I do remember that I looked at it, I think on Thursday morning. And um, on Thursday morning, I was up 60 basis points, maybe a bit more even. That's what I remember. So I think I've had a positive week because I don't think that I've lost 60 basis points yesterday. I cannot tell you which markets were driving the party, party in air quotes. I mean, it's only 60 bips, but, uh, you know, I've had a couple of weeks kind of like almost in a row where it's down 50 basis points, down 20 basis points, down 50 basis points, just grinding lower. So so this um, this feels good. It's it's a bit of a relief. I'm happy about it. And I'll be happy to put into the show notes uh, what the performance drivers were. Sure, absolutely. Now, Rob, as usual, it's always interesting to uh, have you back and hear what's going on in the last month or so. Of course, September as a whole was so far the worst month for CTAs in 2020, certainly for the, the broader index and, and, and trend followers in particular. So since that month has just come to a close, how was September on your side? Yeah, I, I didn't run the numbers for September exactly. I ran them from the last time I was on, which was at the end of August, up till till yesterday. So there's a couple of days of October in there. So it might not be a exact light for light, but actually for me it was a very good month. I was up four point six percent, and the gains really were in things like uh, Italian and French bonds, and German bonds, interestingly, and Korean bonds, with a couple of other markets in there. So very good in bonds. Of that 4.6%, basically, it was all made in bonds with um, just a little bit of kind of random contribution across the other markets. So um, so that that's interesting. And just, just for a kind of a comparison with, with you guys, just looking at the last week, that was actually, um, for me also, a probably similar performance to Moritz once you've taken into account the fact that we're running at different risk levels. So I, I was up about 1% last week. And actually, the, the pattern of gains is very, very similar. So a lot of good performance in the bond markets, not so good in, in say, the, the agricultural markets. But um, yeah, it does feel a little bit like um, a kind of calm before the storm. And uh, I, I'm sort of hoping that my system doesn't decide to build up any positions that are too big over the next few weeks, because it, it does feel like volatility is going to get pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. And we do have that bump in the VIX term structure still around uh, the US election so there are it's not just you who uh, are expecting maybe a little bit of excitement around that time now when you talk about your performance being strong and all of that is that that's not just pure trend following right that's also some of the the long only side of your portfolio that kicked in well or, or? that's my futures trading which is um, probably about 30% carry 60% trend following and 10% some other little bits and pieces but um okay. yeah it's not a it's a it's a kind of reasonable trend following proxy it's probably got a correlation of about 70 to 80 percent with you know with the big trend following indices yeah 
Okay, cool. So, I mean, on our side, very similar to what you just described there, Rob, last week, similar performance in terms of a quote-unquote a small up week. Certainly, we benefited mostly from the weaker energy prices that we saw, as well as the soft dollar. And then other sectors were somewhat muted overall. And we gave back a little bit in our volatility strategy last week as well, but nothing really major. Now, we got a couple of topics that you wanted to bring up, Rob. We got a few questions as well from Chris and Robertus that we need to dive into. Some good ones, some of them also, or one of them will be familiar to our listeners in terms of the topic, so that's going to be exciting. And I've got a couple of things that I noticed as well, and of course, Moritz may also have a few things. But why don't we kick it off with you, Rob? There are some things that, since you're not here every week, let's give a lot of airtime to uh, some of the things that you find interesting at the moment. One thing I, I, I actually, one thing that really annoys me, if I'm being honest with you, Yesterday morning, when um, we did hear about the, the sad news about um, the President of the United States and, and his wife, I remember there was a news flash saying, you know, oh, the markets are panicking and, and the Dow, the Dow is down 500 points. My stomach churned. I was like, oh my God, 500 points. That sounds absolutely terrifying, absolutely enormous. And then my, my kind of rational brain kicked in and, and, and said, uh, well, what, what, 500 points, what does that actually, what does that actually mean? And, and I quickly Googled, what is the level of the Dow? Because of course, I suppose one of the interesting things about trading purely systematically, I do try not to look too closely at what markets are doing on a day-to-day basis, which means I don't necessarily know what the price level is of every index in, that I'm trading. I could probably tell you what the FTSE is roughly because it's the kind of home index in the UK. I could probably tell you roughly where pound dollar is because that, that's quite important to me. But a lot of other levels, I couldn't even tell you. And uh, it wasn't until I checked that I, I realized that that actually 500 points on, on the Dow, I think, worked out to about 1.3%, which, you know, is is a kind of a reasonable size move, but it's probably roughly one standard deviation, something like that. And it just, I think it's an interesting um, topic to think about because um, one of the things I think we try and do in our trading systems is sort of standardize everything so that we can be thinking about things across markets, comparing things across markets, without having to be constantly translating things into percent percentages and then into vol scale returns and all this kind of stuff. And I just, I don't know, it's just a real pet hate of mine when people report market moves in points, because it's just completely meaningless. I don't know what you guys think. Well, it got your attention, which of course I'm sure is the whole point, right? When you see that flashing red number saying, oh, Dow down 500 points. And and of course, we know, and this is, I think this is also why financial podcasts have become so popular, frankly, is the fact that I think people are generally getting bored or even tired of the way news are being reported. And I'm not just saying the financial news, but clearly some of the mainstream media, they just thrive by throwing out negative news and, 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 and things that will essentially, you know, fear sells better than than anything else. And also, you know, we know uh, our friends over at Real Vision, they have become a real alternative to some of this uh, media. And so I think it's, it, and this is also what we're trying to, to do every week is, of course, we're trying to talk and educate and report what's going on, but without the fear mongering. So I share your sentiment, but I've kind of already gotten to the point where I don't even turn on the television to to watch that headline. 
I think we've touched on that before. I, I mentioned it a couple of times. I'm I'm just as annoyed as Rob is about this. Probably was uh, in in the fall of 2018 when we had the correction in the equity markets. And, you know, there's constantly there CNBC and Bloomberg saying the Dow is down, you know, 700 points and the S&P is down 150 points. It's like, what does that even mean? It is just, it is really bad reporting. And I think they know that. I think they know it and they still do it because it is exaggerating and it gets people to maybe panic, uh, but they take the wrong conclusions. It is, it is not the way that anybody should be looking at markets and returns. Just use a percentage return and it keeps you a lot calmer. That's, by the way, what I do with my trend following system or with my trading in general, right? If I looked at a P&L, like a daily P&L in dollar terms, right? And it, it's more like than, say, 10,000 or 20,000. Sometimes it happens and it's like you feel crap. You feel really crap. You know, you, <laughs> it's, uh, you've lost a bunch of money. But, you know, if it says, oh, you've lost 0.5 or 0.6% of your portfolio in a given day at 20% vol, then it's kind of like, well, what's the big deal? I should actually expect that to happen every day or every second day. So it's not a problem. It's just doing what it's supposed to do. And I think this is important to not look at it the wrong way because it gets you on the wrong track. I think we're, we're not preaching to the choir here. Probably CNBC isn't listening to our podcast, neither is Bloomberg. I don't think that's going away. Like I said, they, they probably know that they're doing it. They know it's wrong because the people that work there, they, aren't, they, they just cannot be that stupid, right? But, you know, it's, it's the commercials, it's the business, it's this, this is just the way they want to run their business. Okay, fine. They've lost us as their viewers because we're no longer watching them. But, well, maybe there's a couple of people still out there who, uh, who enjoy that. Yeah, I think that's really good advice, actually. Um, off the piece of advice I often give to people is if you want to become more um, removed from your trading and try and be more rational about it, is only ever look at your returns and percentages. Don't look at it in money terms. Because when you've got, you know, if you get to the point where you're lucky enough to have a decent-sized account, those daily swings, I mean, they, they can easily be four or five figures, which, you know, is a lot of money. But, of course, it's mostly random on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's really hard to tell yourself that. <laughs> It's really hard not to be um, elated when you've, you know, you've, if you've made a five-figure profit or really annoyed if you've made a five-figure loss. But then you look at the percentage and it's not too bad, actually. Yeah. So you say when you're looking at your own trading returns, you do it in percentage terms. When you're looking at, say, market performance, so let's say maybe it's for an internal meeting or you're trying to present to clients a monthly report and you're saying, right, this is kind of how the market's did over the last mm -hmm month or something do you go a step further then and i must hesitate to introduce the v word this early in the conversation but there we go do you go a step further and and vol adjust those returns so they're meaningful so you can say okay yeah euro dollars moved like 0.02 percent but actually that's three standard deviations s p moved two percent but actually that's only half a standard deviation mm -hmm. or, or do you think that that's a step too far Yes, I, I know exactly what you mean, and I like the idea. I actually don't do it in vol terms. I do it in ATR terms, which, you know, it's kind of like it's, it's, it's bringing across the same point, like, you know, how many ATRs did a market move in a given week? But internally, I don't do that with, with our client. I mean, we don't have that many meetings about the performance. Um, but what I do do, and this is, I think, a chart that they enjoy, and I'm happy to share it with you guys, is um, for all the markets that we have in their portfolio, on a monthly basis, I just plot bar charts for their monthly performances and I rank them. 
from highest to lowest, right? So it, it starts with, I don't know what the best performing market was. Uh, maybe last month it was silver. I don't know. It, it, it went up, it crashed. I, I don't know. Right? It's, it goes from, from 1 to 50 or 55. And then on the same chart, on, on the secondary axis, I plot the contribution of the market in my system. And that relationship is kind of interesting, right? So if, if silver has a plus 20% month and the system is long silver, and then on that same bar in a different color, I can show, well, we've made 2% off of silver, then that's cool, right? If we have the wrong position on, then it's going to be a bar into the negative territory and everybody immediately knows that we uh, were short instead of long. And this is one of the charts, even though it is a simple chart that, you know, at some point I just came up with, it got the the greatest amount of applause for whatever reason. It's just, you know, that that's what they like to see. So we, we continue to do that. But I don't overwhelm them with, uh, well, we've made, I don't know, seven ATRs in silver or something like that. It's, it's just too much explaining going on. But we have that internally at the quantitative research team. You know, uh, we kind of like, we speak that language. We normalize everything into ATR space or volatility space, if you will. Because otherwise it's, Again, a meaningless number, whether you've made, I don't know how many thousand dollars in weed or that many percent in weed, it doesn't really mean anything if what your system is doing is, you know, looking to take the same amount of risk across all of the markets. So I'm more interested in how many ATRs did that market move and how many ATRs PL did it contribute to the portfolio this week, this month, etc. Yeah, that's that's quite a cool way of doing it. I, I guess the other amusing thing is if, if you do everything in vaults, then eventually there'll be some kind of crash and some, some poor quant will be asked to report on it and he'll say, well, it, it moved by, you know, 18 standard deviations, which was, and everyone then, of course, will be very mean to that quant and, and say uh, how silly they're being by uh, by saying that that's, you know, something that's only happened once in the history of the universe. So I think we maybe we should be careful about using vol adjustment too much in, in, in the kind of public facing because not everyone understands that most of us do understand that a vol adjustment is only an approximation that assumes Gaussian returns, blah, blah, blah. And uh... Correct. By the way, I just got my numbers. I'm up 77 basis points uh, with the largest contributor being iron ore followed by OJ, that's orange juice, and wheat. And you know, you know what you just said, um, Rob, at the beginning of the conversation actually got me thinking about, like, you said, you know roughly where the FTSE is, you know roughly where cable is, because those markets are meaningful or important to you. And I guess everybody has their handful of markets, or maybe the two or three markets that they look at and where they know where the prices are, right? And, you know, for me, for whatever reason, I can be pretty exact about WTI crude oil front month contracts. You know, uh, yeah, that's 37. I, I don't know why it is, but I look at that multiple times a day. It's just a habit of me. There's really no reason. I should be looking at wheat and corn and iron ore and the 10-year Canadian and the Korean bonds in the same way, but I don't. If you ask me where the Korean bond is trading or where BTPs are trading or where canola is trading or any of that, I'd like, I wouldn't have a clue. I, 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 and not even ballpark. I mean, maybe a little bit ballpark, but it's... Is that because you have a car that uses a lot of gas? Uh, exactly. The Ferrari uses a lot of gas. No, I'm just kidding. It's just a habit, right? And yeah, I can roughly tell you where the DAX is trading uh, and probably the S&P. But if you ask me about the NASDAQ or even, 
even the Dow? Well, I, I don't know. I look at the 10-year US, I think that's around 126, but some of the other markets, I really don't have a clue. Gas oil? No clue. Sugar? I don't know. <laughs> but, but it doesn't matter, right? It's just, uh, it really isn't important to know where those things are trading. What about you, Niels? What, what are your markets that you actually can follow enough to be able to quote the price? I would say I probably follow a few more markets than it seems that you two guys are doing. But of course, there will be markets where you're not that entirely sure. But I, maybe also because if you do uh, look at your kind of your signal sheet every day just to see where things are and and so on and so forth, you you know, some of these numbers do register with you. Um, so you're not completely um, surprised when you look at the screen once in a while and, and see where it's trading. So the thing is, and I think this is a very important point, I do think that on, on one hand, and maybe it's because I actually started as as a trader, not as a systems trader, but as a real you know trader having to make decisions based on uh, you know no rules. So so markets, uh, I would say, are still of great interest to me. I find it fascinating. Uh, I find it fascinating with what's going on and what I think may happen going forward. Although it doesn't impact me, of course, in terms of how I think you should be trading. I think following rules and trend following in particular is the way forward, no doubt about it. But but I find it interesting and fascinating. And I also find, you know, history of markets and bubbles and manias and all of those things really something that just helps give you some context at the end of the day. I know some people are much more focused on just just follow the rules. That's fine. And that is, of course, from a trading point of view, the right thing. But it, I don't think it. you need to, you know, not pay attention to what goes on around you. Uh, I think that's uh, perfectly fine. But, uh, yeah. Good stuff. What else did you have on your side, Rob, that you wanted to um, dive into today? As I said, there are a couple of questions that will be quite specifically for for you is one of them and maybe for more it's the other one but but we wanted to get some of the topics dealt with that you also had brought up yeah i just thought it was interesting that moritz was having computer problems this morning i was having computer problems yesterday which i was discussing with Niels before we came on the air and uh, actually i was having more computer problems last week trying to get my my wife's laptop working which runs under windows which is an operating system i absolutely loathe and spend as little time as, as possible with. But um, it kind of got me thinking because um, I think the thing people find most disappointing when they, they if, if they're you know lucky enough to meet me in person and, and be invited around to my house, which is not like a general offer to the, the people listening, <laughs> um, is is the, you know, to, to see, you know, the, the trading room, which basically consists of a, a couple of computers in a dusty corner linked to a router with no monitors or anything like that and and my kind of little 14 inch screen uh, that I'm looking at now because you know they're expecting to see the the sea of monitors and and all this kind of stuff and um yeah I, I just think it's kind of interesting for people to understand the difference between systematic and discretionary trading and one is in the way that we use computers isn't it because um although our infrastructure has to be robust absolutely robust it doesn't necessarily have to. It's surprising, I think, because we probably use computers in a more sophisticated way than the average discretionary trader, right? But ironically, I, I would imagine that we probably spend have much poorer computers in some respects, certainly in terms of the number of monitors than those guys tend to do. I don't know if you you, you guys ever had had that 
I don't know how how many times you've had people like breaking into your your office to to meet you because they're so excited to finally see the the faces of the podcast and then being very disappointed at not seeing like a wall of monitors. Is that, is that an experience you've had as well? Or? They don't come to my office, but of course they have. I have twenty four different monitors uh, on the ceiling, uh, on the side walls, uh, back and forth. Yeah, I mean the listeners the listeners can't actually see Moritz's webcam, but but I can tell you that, that is actually not true. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do with them. But what I did, and, you know, I, I upgraded my screens during the, uh, the virus lockdown. And I had two 24-inch um, screens uh, next to each other for the past 10 years or so. I, I think I purchased those in, in 2009. And they were still perfectly fine. I mean, they, they, there was absolutely no problem with those screens. They were still working. But I was just, look, I'm, I'm looking into these screens a lot during the day and I wanted to have a 4K HD larger screen. So I purchased two 32-inch monitors. I'd say that is that was money well spent. It is money well spent. I enjoy that much more. I, you know, I can see it better. It is much clearer. Uh, it is an improvement, right? So, so that, that is, but that's the only investment that I made in terms of IT technologies in, in many years. For the most part, I'm running things off of a laptop. Laptops have become so powerful, they cost a little bit of money, but they've become so powerful that, you know, I don't really need a stationary computer anymore. And I enjoy having a laptop because I can, you know, can, can carry it around. If I, if I need to go somewhere, um, I'll just, you know, pick the thing up, put it into a bag and, and off we go. So it is really, really not much keyboard, mouse, laptop, two screens, that's it. Nothing special, really. So if we want to go down that route, which is obviously something we, we don't really talk about that much. So so I, I guess I have then a slightly different uh, setup. But I actually like both of you. I think right now when we're talking, it's all happening on, on a laptop. But because we, um, you know, when, do, when you do a podcast, you actually uh, need quite a bit of information in front of you of different sources I actually did go out, uh, maybe it was last year, to buy a larger monitor that I can just attach to the um, laptop. So I'm right now looking at a 49-inch monitor, and all I can say is that's actually wow. too much because you almost, you have to kind of turn your head in order to see from one side to the other. So it wasn't quite what I expected, but it's uh, it does allow me to put all my, my notes and my... Um, programs that I need open to have these conversations and on on one screen so in that sense it's 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 quite nice and frankly nowadays you can get these monitors for um, relatively reasonable money but I think it's a little bit too much I probably would find something around I don't know 40 inch I think would be a good size that still allows you to have three full almost three full screens um, in front of you yeah I mean those those screens but when I looked at the thing, they, they tend to become exponentially more expensive the larger they get, right? So a, a 48 or 50-inch screen is substantially more expensive than two 24-inch. I mean, a 24-inch screen probably is 150 or 200 bucks. They really aren't that expensive anymore. And, and I got the 32-inch screens. I mean, we're, we're getting off topic here, but they were like, you know, 350 or something like that. Whereas if you wanted a good a real good um, like 50 inch screen, they're probably more than a thousand dollars or something like that. But it's a matter of taste. I think, you know, when, when you when you spend 
a day or when you spend a lot of time in front of a computer, you must have a setup, at least I want to have a setup that is not annoying, that allows me to, you know, do the work and not be, I, I just want good equipment. It, it's more fun that way. So I think for me, that's money well spent, but I don't need eight screens. No, I mean, Niels might need it because he's got to track all these 50 markets. He's actually looking at the prices of, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right, um, it's interesting, isn't it? I think um, for me, what's more important is the the kind of horsepower of the machine I'm using because I need to run back tests, which you know can computationally be quite uh, an intensive process. I mean, do you guys do that like locally on your laptops, or do you kind of virtual machine into a, a cluster or a cloud server or something like that? Or? I used to do it, Rob, on AWS and on Azure. I had both instances running on AWS and Azure. But I didn't do that for the backtesting and the parallel computing there. I had this kind of like as a, as a setup where I thought, well, that's a good thing to do. I just access the server from wherever I am in the world. And the only thing I need is a, is a tiny laptop. And that laptop doesn't then have to be that powerful. But I stopped using that setup because, you know, I need to, you know, patch these things and run updates on that stuff. I need to get Bloomberg running on the thing. Sometimes on the server instance, it's not that that's straightforward to do uh, because ports are blocked and, you know, things like that. And what I ended up doing is um, buying a more powerful notebook. So not one of these, you know, 900 or 1,000 US dollar notebooks, but one that is substantially more expensive, but has a lot of horsepower. It has horsepower akin to a stationary computer. And that, that works perfectly for me. And ever since I'm using that, it, it's also fast enough for me, I, you know. It's, I have no problem with that. For the things I do in terms of backtesting, it's on AWS. So, so there we are. But it could be done on a local machine as well, I, I would say. That's, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I kind of went down the same route as Moritz. I've got a pretty powerful laptop. I did, I have toyed with the idea of setting up almost like a local cluster because I do have quite a few spare machines lying around because I have a bit of a habit of buying computers. So I hope your I wife is not listening to this. I sincerely hope that she isn't. Um, yeah, I've, I've, I've hidden them mostly away in random parts of the house. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the cloud stuff's interesting because, um, I mean, I actually run my trading system, which is fully automated locally. And um, probably every week someone says to me, why don't you run it on the cloud? And it is one of those things that I've kind of thought about doing, but there is quite a lot of a fixed cost in terms of hassle of getting it working and, and, um, and then a little bit of ongoing cost in making sure it works. So I've, I haven't gone down that route, but it is always an option I thought about, I have to say. So now we've discussed the media. We talked a little bit about uh, a topic uh, like uh, how do we even, what screens are we using? I wasn't expecting that one today, but there we are. What's your, what's your I think you had one more topic you wanted to bring up, uh, Rob? I did, but I think it would be more fun and perhaps make more sense if we had the questions next, actually, because my topic may segue okay. into one of those questions. I'm sure it will. Okay, cool. All right, well, let's jump to the question. So the first uh, question is from Robertus, and um, who very kindly starts out by saying that that he wants to uh, thank us for the hard work we're putting into this podcast. It is the highlight of my week when I see it appear in my feed. So uh, thanks very much for those kind words. Now... Your favorite topic, volatility targeting. In Rob's book, Systematic Trading, there is a chapter nine on volatility targeting. Volatility targeting is one of the building blocks of the framework that is laid out in the book. It would be interesting to hear how Rob explained this building block 
of the framework and Moritz's take on it. Question two. I understand that you all trade futures contracts, but I would like, and I would like to do that as well. However, being a retail trader with quite a small account, I cannot achieve the desired diversification with futures. This is why I adapted Rob's framework to trade leverage ETFs. I read in his books and heard him mention that leverage ETFs should not be used. Could you please expand on this? What is what are the reasons? I've been trading this strategy for two years already, and I did not see any issues, but maybe I'm missing something. I should be careful. So those two are the questions. Let's dive in. Rob, over to you. Yeah, I should first say that I know it sounds a bit suspicious that someone called Roberta, Robertus, which is obviously a very similar name to mine, is written in saying how great the show is and how great my books are, but I can assure you it's not me. I did notice that. Yeah. Yeah. If I was going to do that, I would have used a less obvious alias, perhaps. Yeah, so um, I'm struggling. I'm glad that he mentioned what Chapter 9 was about, or I would have been faced with the prospect of having to grab a copy of my book from the shelf and desperately try and remember what was in Chapter 9, because, you know, this is a book I wrote over five years ago now, but uh, it is indeed about vol targeting. I mean, we have talked about vol targeting at length, but in an abstract sense, the idea is that there is some level of risk that you want to achieve either on a particular position or on your trading system overall. We can get into a debate about how risk should be measured, how different people have different tolerances of risk and so on and so forth. I like to keep things simple and, and basically assume that the world is not like it is, assume that returns are Gaussian and therefore that one can use just um, the second moment of the distribution, which is a standard deviation, and, and use that as a way of both expressing what someone's appetite for risk should be, but also, um, you know, how, how you should measure risk of the instruments you're trading. So the, the, the thing you have to do is firstly come up with a, an appropriate target risk that you want to achieve. And there's a number of elements that go into that. The first is, and, pro- and definitely the most important, I would say, is this thing we talk about quite a bit, which is some way of saying, given the performance of my system, what is the optimal level of risk I should be running at? And, you know, a lot of people, including myself, use this thing called the Kelly criteria. The Kelly criteria basically says, given some level of um, performance or expected edge, betting edge, gambling edge, how much money should you be putting into your your, your bets, for example? And there's there's a kind of fixed version of this, which I actually use myself to do. I do a little bit of kind of gambling in the political markets on the side. So I put a bit of money in the US presidential election, which Niels and I were actually discussing before we started. But there's also a kind of continuous version of it you can use in, um, in your sort of normal trading system. And the other thing to say is that to, to, you have to make a lot of assumptions, which probably aren't realistic, to use the full level of Kelly betting. And so most people use a lower level than this. Um, a lot of people use the half Kelly, which means you just take the risk target and cut it in half. I do something a little bit more sophisticated, which is to look at how much confidence I have in the my estimate of what the Kelly criteria should be, and then basically take a conservative point of, of that distribution. So I'm, I'm basically saying this is a level I should run at, given that I'm kind of 70% confident that my system performance is at this level or higher. That will normally be the kind of constraint in determining what your risk target should be, but there are other things as well. So there's your own risk appetite, you know, how much risk you can cope with. And we discussed earlier about how, um, you know, if, if you're running a reasonable sized account, the swings in money terms can be quite high. Percentage terms don't look too bad. 
But if you ramp up your risk too high, even those percentage swings can look quite quite scary. And and um, a lot of people who think kind of intellectually they can cope with that kind of risk, the moment they're actually running it in a real life trading system, they realise they can't. So I generally advise people to start with fairly low risk targets and then increase them gradually as they kind of get comfortable with what's going on. And then there's a couple of kind of external constraints. So, you know, exchanges and brokers won't let you use infinite amounts of leverage. There's normally regulatory or mar- margin limits on those. And it's also sensible to incorporate some kind of factor accounting for the fact that returns are not Gaussian. And um, I, I call this the black swan factor, which is a name I stole off somebody else. And guy you might have heard of who writes about black swans a lot. Um, you know, he's... I guess he's some kind of expert on birds, maybe. I don't know if the listeners of this podcast... Black birds guy, but Yeah, black, black swans specifically. But um, the idea is that, that you say, well, given some really bad market shock, what kind of level of drawdown would I be comfortable with in that market shock? And from that, you can imply what your maximum leverage limit should be and your maximum risk target should be. So that that's a, so all that, you put all that together and basically that will tell you what level of risk you should be targeting... And then the next thing you need to do, which is probably a lot easier, is just to say, well, I I like to, when I'm talking to students about this, I like to say, right, you're walking into a shop to buy some risk. You know how much risk you want to buy. You then have to look at the shelf and see what's on the shelf and how much the price of that risk is. So let's say I want to buy $25,000 of annualized risk. I walk into the shop and the first thing I see is a VIX contract. I need to measure the, the the some have some forecasts for estimating what the volatility of the VIX will be. I need to translate what that is in into dollar terms. And, and I, I'm going to just say a figure because I don't actually know, but say that each contract of VIX has $1,000 of risk attached to it. So then I go to the counter with my $25,000 and say, I'd like to buy 25 VIX contracts, please. And that calculation will be different depending on exactly what it is you're buying or selling. So that that's the core of the idea. And, and you know, there are further things about, for example... Should you change your the risk depending on how confident you are about your forecast? Should you, um, when you're allocating risk across multiple instruments, should you just divide it equally? Should you account for diversification? You know, there's a whole bunch of stuff we could talk about. But the core idea is the fact that there is some risk target you're aiming for, and you can then basically go and buy up that amount of risk by measuring the risk of the things you're trading, and then that determines how many of a particular instrument you want to hold. Before we jump to uh, Moritz, um, do you want to expand a little bit on the point that Robertus make about the leveraged ETFs and um, what he may have to think about that is of a concern to you, uh, it seems? Um, yeah, I was going to come back to that later, but um, I, hadn't, I hadn't forgot about it, honestly. <laughs> I just was thought that would be a separate question. But um, I think it's important that people understand how leveraged ETFs actually work and the way that they work is potentially quite unpleasant because they can you can hold a, a leveraged ETF and over time the think that the, you're you're going to be you know making money but actually the leverage works against you and potentially loses you loses you a lot of money. I mean the general advice is it's okay to hold a leveraged ETF for a couple of days, but holding them for a long period of time you really suffer from the fact that I'm trying to think of a, a way of putting this in a simple numerical example, but the basic maths is something like, let's say that you have the market has a bad day and is down 3%. If you own a two times leveraged ETF, you're going to be down 6%. So now you've got $94 where you used to have 100 
to get from 94 bad actor to 100, it's not, you don't need to make just 3%. You actually need to make more than 3% to get back up to 100 because 3% doubled 6%. 6% of 94 is not 6. It's less than 6. I can't be bothered to work out what it is, but, you know, it's less than 6. And that's fine over one or two days. But if that, as that continues over time, if things are moving against you, you know, your, your capital can be wiped out really quickly. And in fact, we did see this with um, leveraged oil ETFs way back a few months ago when we were talking about oil a lot. Maybe that's where Moritz developed his obsession. I don't know. Or maybe he's always had it since he was a child. I don't know. But, the, you know, there was kind of high profile cases of leveraged oil ETFs um, being, being shut down for this very reason. And actually, it's uh, also something we see in, in our industry as a whole, because uh, some managers will offer products with different level of leverage, but it's the same strategy. And they don't actually, for the same reasons, I mean, the math when you're in a drawdown, uh, there's a difference be- between being in a 40% drawdown and a 20% drawdown when you have to recover. Uh, so so there will be small differences on that as well. But I think your, your point is well taken on the leverage ETF. Sorry, just quickly, actually links back to the idea of the Kelly criteria, because by taking on too much leverage, you're quite possibly pushing yourself beyond the optimal leverage point, which means that the Kelly criteria says you'll actually end up losing money, even if the underlying asset is actually profitable. Just sorry, thought I'd mention that, sorry. Sure. Marge, what are your, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. Let's start with these leveraged ETFs. I think the, the issue with the leveraged ETFs, 2X, 3X, and then there's inverse versions of that as well, is the mean reversion tendency, the propensity of markets to mean revert, right? So as Rob was saying, if you hold them for a couple of days, the damage is kind of controlled. But if you hold them for a longer period of time, then you will suffer from the fact that markets every once in a while have a mean reversion tendency and they do not trend. Right? So you uh, have an exposure to a leveraged ETF, say the market, you know, to, to make a simpler example that we can actually calculate without doing 6% times 94. If the market goes up 10%, you know, you're at 110. If it goes down 10%, which is exactly the same percentage return of the following day, you're not at 100, you're at 99. And that works in the exact same way in the opposite direction to the downside. Now, if that happens, happens a couple of days in a row, right, you're up 10, down 10, up 10, down 10, up 10, down 10, then you don't end up with 99. You end up with probably something around 97 or something like that, right? Now, 10% is a very, very high number. You see it maybe in the VIX, right? And we had the XIV meltdown on, on you know, February 5th or 2nd of 2018, where, you know, a 50% increase... No, I think of the XAV, it wasn't leveraged. So 100% increase, 100% percentage increase in the VIX, which is what happened, right? Wiped out that product. So I would therefore say that one should be very careful when using these products, even though I know they're liquid, they're easily tradable. You can trade them on interactive brokers and you know pretty much every other platform out there. But you should be very cautious when implementing them into a trend-following trading system that has a medium to long-term holding period because you will be holding these ETFs for a couple of weeks, maybe a month even, right? And every time markets mean revert during that time span, you will kind of like bleed a little bit and you would have been better off sizing the position in a different way, either through a futures contract, which has the leverage, 
or by using a obviously efficiently priced margin account uh, to trade an unleveraged version of an ETF, but have a greater exposure to that unleveraged version on margin. That would do away with the compounding effect. But of course, you would have to pay for the funding that you know your broker charges you uh, for that exposure. And speaking about that funding, there is a trade that I made for, you know, that's that's one of the trades that, you know, every once in a while you manufacture these trades, you see these trades, and it's outside of our trend following trading system. But probably 2015, 2014, 14, 15, somewhere around that period, right? There were a lot of leveraged ETFs launched. They kind of like became really popular around that point in time. I mean, they were invented, I guess. I remember the first ones coming up probably in 2010 or something like that. But prior to 2010, those type of products didn't exist. So they came up around that point in time and then they were picked up by the market and more providers, you know, Velocity Shares uh, together with Credit Suisse, but, you know, also iShares and, you know, other providers, they came up with inverse 2x, inverse 3x, long 2x, long 3x, et cetera, et cetera, on all sorts of markets, WTI, the S&P, the Russell, you know, everything really under the sun. And on some of the markets, it never worked really for me for the S&P, but I think it was on the Russell initially, right? I could be long a 2x Russell ETF, and I could be long an inverse Russell ETF. Sorry, I could, be sh- I, could, I could be short them. I could be short them and I, I would just make money through the compounding. So I was extracting the mean reversion compounding damage that these ETFs have as a, as a byproduct of their nature. And I could make money doing that because the borrow rate on interactive brokers for both of these ETFs wasn't high enough or was low enough so that I could make that amount of money, right? Obviously, it required the market to mean revert. If it just trends and trends and trends, right, then I will just be, you know, paying out the borrower to the brokerage platform and not make money. But markets did mean revert back then. And it was actually, it wasn't a free lunch by any means, but it felt like a little bit of a free snack, right? Because the borrower was, what, 25 bips a year, something like that. But, you know, markets mean reverting that much, I would be making a couple of percent just holding them and eventually rebalancing them to, to the same size. And that trade went away at some point because, you know, markets aren't stupid and people figure that stuff out. And the borrow rate starts to adjust to exactly, pretty much exactly reflect the fair price that should be charged so that a trade as simple as that no longer works. That's the beauty of markets, right? They're not, they're, they are just efficient in that way. It doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a couple of months and boom, that trade is gone. I think you can still do that trade today, but you need to be in a very sophisticated professional trading setup with super low commissions, you know, a broker that, you know, where you get very low borrow fees and, and these type of things. And then I think the trade is still on the table, probably with a relatively thin PL expectation, but it, it is still there. But for for retail type of like interactive brokers, Schwab, whatever brokerage account, it, it, it's probably no longer available and I stopped looking at it. But it's kind of like a walk down memory lane because I touched these leverage ETFs 
but I did do it for a different reason. I traded them in order to extract that element uh, from them. I didn't use them for a trend-following trading system. And I wouldn't, wouldn't recommend doing it. Yeah, I remember somebody a few years ago for about the same time saying to me, you must do this trade, you must do this trade. Yeah. And I never got round to it, and I really regret it now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's, it, it's no longer there, I think. And then, I don't want to make this a monologue, but the, the, the Keller criterion, I mean, um, this is just this amazing story, right? I mean, you know, Kelly, but then also, you know, the, the person actually putting it into practice and using it at Thorpe in the 1960s 70s. I, I forgot exactly when that was, right? But in the casinos in Las Vegas playing blackjack. So the Kelly criterion, what it does is it allows you to find a mathematical bet size or trading position size, right? That prevents you from going bankrupt. It avoids the risk of ruin or it, it, it sets the risk of ruin to zero so that you don't overbet. But it does come with one very important requirement for it to work. And that is you need to know the probabilities. So in blackjack, when you count cards, you know the probabilities. You know exactly what they are. You know whether they are 51% or 52%, depending on whether the deck is hot or cold. But in markets, you do not. So the Kelly criterion would be something like, you know, it's the win probability minus, uh, I think, one minus win probability divided by the, the, the win-loss ratio. And, and then when you play cards or you play any of these games of chance where you have a defined distribution and you have defined probabilities, then you have an exact definition of what the bet size is that you should be putting on. And when you do that, you don't go bankrupt. But in markets, it's impossible to say that I have a 60% probability of making money in anything. I could, you know, look at the distribution, like my sample size of trades and say, I have a win rate of 39% and I have therefore 40, uh, sorry, 61% losing trades. I also know that I do win more with my winning trades than I do lose with my losing trades. So I have a very loose statistical representation that I could put into the formula, but I'm also cognizant of that fact that that distribution isn't stable, it moves. It moves with every trade that I do. And, you know, every year can be very different. You know, I sometimes have years where, you know, I have, I have a substantially greater win rate, and sometimes I have a substantially lower win rate than 39%. So this to me, and I looked at the Kelly criterion as well, but this to me, this, this dynamic and that instability of my probability environment with regards to trades and the noisiness of markets and just markets continually surprising you, like every year there's something going on that distorts these probability calculations and that, you know, kind of like doesn't make it stable. I therefore, I therefore stopped. I never used Kelly. I researched it, I examined it, but, you know, to me it was like, it's not applicable here. I cannot work with that formula, simple, clean formula with, you know, defined probabilities in, a, in an environment that doesn't have defined probabilities, where every once in a while something happens. We've talked about that person who, who, has, a, uh, who has a fable for birds. Every once in a while something happens that, you know, is, is completely out of the box, oil negative. You know, there you go. What's the probability of that 
in 2019, somebody asked you, what's the probability of oil being the May contract at minus 40? Every one of us says zero. It's absolutely zero, even though we shouldn't be saying that, right? We should always, as Quan say, well, it's probably pretty low. Nothing is really zero, but it's 0.00 something, right? I mean, you come up with some, some number. But at the end of the day, the market surprises you and you get kicked in the teeth because it's at minus 40. And in such an environment, I don't want to bet size anything with Kelly because it might get me completely wrong. Okay. I can't allow this to stand, Moritz, go on this attack on Kelly. So I'm going to have to jump right back in there. Of course, I, I expect nothing less. This is why this is, this is fun. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an econometrician, I think George Box, who said um, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And to me, the, the Kelly is, is an example of a model that's wrong, but useful. And it's not wrong because the maths is wrong. It's wrong because the assumptions that lie behind it are wrong, or at least an approximation of reality that, that doesn't, isn't really true. I think there's a lot of models in finance like this. There's the capital asset pricing model. There's, there's the Black-Scholes model even, actually. And, you know, they're models where, which make a lot of assumptions about the world that aren't true, but I still think that they're, they're useful to have in, in your toolbox as long as you know how to use them safely. So I, I would never use Kelly kind of out of the box, totally raw without, without making any kind of adjustments to reflect the fact that, as I said, it, it's, it's a model that's mathematically correct but doesn't reflect reality. And Moritz is absolutely right in that the, the key assumption is you don't really know what your, you know, your winning percentage is. So therefore, you don't really know what your, your bet size should actually be. So the, there's two heavy caveats that I've talked about very briefly, but I will return to them. So the first is to absolutely say, yes, I'm going to have some estimate of what my performance is likely to be, but it is an estimate. And it has an estimate that actually I, I have some nice statistical tools I can quantify that the amount of uncertainty in that estimate. And that allows me to, to use um, an estimate for my performance that's substantially lower than what the kind of back test would say, the raw back test number would, would say. So it might be, for example, that my back test has a sharp of one. When I look at the statistical uncertainty of that, it tells me actually your mean expectation of your backtest performance is a sharp of one. But when you account for uncertainty, you know, and you look at a sort of level of performance, you can be a bit more confident about really you should be using maybe 0.6, something like that, which would translate into a, a Kelly of 60% of risk adjusted, um, uh, sorry, a standard deviation target a year rather than 100%. And the, the second thing is, again, to Moritz's point about the black swans, the fat tails, the unlikely events that, that never happen but do seem to happen, even when we don't expect them, especially when we don't expect them, is to always make sure that your position sizing accounts for the fact that the returns are not Gaussian. And especially in, in things like, you know, the VIX, your tails, are they're just astonishingly fat and you need to be really careful about just assuming you can use a simplistic standard deviation as a measure of risk of those things. You really can't. You need to make sure that you can survive a extreme event. You can do it quantitatively using the black swan factor I discussed, or there are other ways of doing it. I mean, the, the best and the best protection against this is diversification. If 50% of your portfolio is in the VIX and you're using Kelly sizing and your risk target is kind of something quite high, like maybe 50% a year, you're going to get wiped out. 
at some point in the next couple of years. I guarantee it. I absolutely guarantee it. If on the other hand, um, you know, you've got a um, portfolio weight in the VIX of say 5% and you've got a risk target that's kind of more in line with what I use say, which would be 25% a year. When the 100% rise that we talked about overnight happens, yeah, it's going to knock a, a couple of percent off your performance. Um, but, uh, you know, it's not the end of the world and it's a survivable blow. And that's mainly coming from the diversification effect. So um, I think it's a bit harsh to just throw the whole thing out because I, I do think it's a, a way of thinking about risk that that's useful. It's a useful mental model for me. I, I find a lot of nice intuition about the way the model works. Um, but um, yeah, I've, I'd, I would never, ever use kind of a full Calibet sizing, absolutely never, ever. But I, I do think it's useful for me to, to, to look at that and say, if nothing else is a kind of upper limit on how much risk, risk I should be taking, because I know if I'm getting anywhere near full Kelly, I've almost certain, I'm almost certainly getting way too big. But um, just because a model is wrong doesn't mean it's useful, going back to my earlier point. No, it's, it, it is interesting. I mean, I think we're all aware and all uh, probably old enough and grown up enough to completely understand and cognizant of the fact that any financial model that we've been using as traders, especially derivatives models, right, they are models. And most of them are actually, they're actually for the trash can, in my opinion. You know, the, the, the more I look at them and the more I reflect on the stuff that, you know, I've been using over the years, it's kind of like that, that that's really all BS. Uh, just markets don't work that way. Somebody came up with that model and, you know, ha has a following because of it, you know, and and just everybody uses it, but but they're just wrong. Actually, I, I recommend people have a, you know, there's Paul Wilmot, a uh, really cool, uh, really good UK uh, English mathematician who um, probably 25 years ago or so started publishing the Wilmot magazine. And it's a lot about like, you know, financial mathematical modeling, derivative models in particular. And and he came around, if you listen to a couple of podcasts, um, so, you know, all of that stuff that we've done, I mean, it's intellectually interesting. But in practice, that stuff is, is outright dangerous because it gives you a sense of, of knowing something that is unknowable just because you're using that model. And the only thing, I mean, look, we're all doing things in a slightly different way. And, and I have nothing against anybody using a half Kelly or, you know, a, a, a version of the Kelly criterion like Robert is doing, saying, well, I do know that market returns are not gosh and therefore I cannot, I must not go with one Kelly because if I did that, then I'll be carried out. I would have too much risk on because it doesn't, it doesn't account for the tails of the market, right? And the way that, that, that I looked at that is like, you know, if I do my position sizing using a half Kelly or like, a, you know, any fractional Kelly, and then I, I, I turn around and do it the way I do it today, which is based on average true ranges, right? On a market-by-market market basis. And this is such a, this is real simple. This doesn't require a model. It just requires a calculation of the average true range. And it requires you to have a risk preference of how much is it you want to risk. And so my question to you, Rob, is, I mean, when I did it, I kind of like get the same results, like when I do my ATR-based sizing uh, of the portfolio, um, over all these trades, thousands of trades done in the same way, it creates a chart. And then when I do the same thing and I do it with Kelly, you know, of course it's going to be slightly different. But we're not talking like we're, we're, we're in a different stadium here. It's not a different thing. It's still 
it's still kind of like the, the trend following returns that I would expect. And, and so therefore, Occam's razor, I go with the simplest possible thing that has the least amount of expectations, the least amount of input and calculations that I need to put in and the least amount of me making any assumptions as to whether I should be using half Kelly or 0.6 Kelly or 0.4 Kelly. And, you know, this is not a critique to anybody using the Kelly criterion. I just, you know, to me, I, I turned around and thought, well, let's keep it simple and go back to ATRs. No reason to change it. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, what you're doing and what, um, is, and what I'm doing isn't really that different. ATRs and standard deviations are both measures of risk based on the recent daily returns of a market. And because they're both single parameter risk models, they are both effectively, one explicitly, one implicitly assuming that the returns have some sort of standard distribution. And I actually did a blog post where I, I said, can I kind of, what is the relationship to an ATR and standard deviation? Because it is quite interesting. And um, basically, you can't actually say mathematically, given what the ATR is, what should the standard deviation be? Because the inputs they use are slightly different, obviously. So ATRs are using bars, standard deviations just using closing prices. So what actually influences the kind of ratio between them, if you estimate them both for the same market over the same time period, is the amount of kind of intra-bar volatility effectively. So it's the autocorrelation patterns. But I did find empirically interestingly that the standard deviation of a market in price return space, so not percentage space, because um, in price return space, was um, I think 0.9 of the ATR, maybe it was the way around. So actually, interestingly, they came out to be fairly similar numbers, although there was a a definite bias that one was slightly lower than the other. So yeah, I don't think there's a, a big difference. Um, and people, some people, I mean, to me, actually, standard deviation is simpler than ATR, <laughs> to be honest with you. So and what you find simple, I find a bit, a little bit weird, and vice versa, I guess. Um, but um, you're right, fundamentally, they're, they're both essentially single parameter risk models, which therefore are making some assumptions about, about the distribution. And as long as your your kind of risk target, either explicit or implicit, is similar, they should produce very similar results. We're kind of really in a, you know, it's like two people who fundamentally are from the same kind of branch of, of religion kind of arguing about whether the priest should wear a white robe or a red robe. And, you know, wars have been fought in the past over this, but actually the, the difference really is not that big or that important, to be honest. And um, fundamentally, you're making some assumptions about the market You've got some rules that are fairly simple. You know, we can argue about whose rules are simpler and they will produce positions that are probably sensible as long as you're not, you know, your risk target's not too insane because it's quite quite possible to use ATR risk sizing and come up with positions that are way too big. And it's quite possible to use standard re- deviation risk targeting and, and have the same problem. And that will happen if you, you know, naively use the Kelly criteria. I wouldn't say that no, that's a fundamental weakness of either methodology. They're pretty similar at the end of the day. No doubt that assumptions are important, building models. God forbid people still build models thinking that markets are efficient, so we don't want to get into that little debate. I uh, want to respect our listeners' time, uh, since we're already 
and we're not, you know, we're already gone an hour or so, and we still have a, another question and maybe another topic. So let me jump right on to Chris's uh, question that came in this morning. Chris writes, I've been working on my own system for a number of years. I'm most confident that I will be able to follow the system through the good times and bad. I've come to realize that a lot of trading slash investing is being able to stick with the process or system. That said, I have a comment, maybe even a question. I'll use silver as an explanation because it is the futures contract that I'm having the most problems with. Using a 20-day ATR of 1.16, a minimum fluctuation of 0.005 of the dollar value of the minimum fluctuation will get you daily movement of about $5,800 per day. My thinking is that I would like the dollar movement per day to be about half a percent of the account value. That would mean an account value of $1.16 million, which is a little too high for me. I know that Silver has a mini contract, but because of your great podcast series, I don't feel comfortable trading it. Its daily volume is less than 75 contracts, and I wouldn't be able to trade too many contracts with that little volume. It is because of the podcast that I have switched to using volume as opposed to open interest, and it makes complete sense. So my question, I guess, is, is my thinking too conservative, too aggressive? Am I missing something? So, ATR expert, Moritz? I mean, it's ATR, it's silver, which I don't trade. So, Moritz, this is definitely in right. the ballpark. Mm. Well, I, you know, I, I didn't pick up anything that he might be missing. I think the, the thinking there is correct. You know, um, he's looking to size the position in relation to the account equity uh, and he has a certain amount of risk that he would like to take. You could do it with that mini silver contract, which I personally don't trade either. But if it is not liquid enough, if it trades 75 contracts, then it's probably not a market that you should be trading because uh, it just isn't enough liquidity for you to trade it in an efficient way. But I didn't pick up anything that's that's wrong with the thinking. Maybe you need to find a different market and not trade silver. And, you know, find futures markets that have a smaller notional value, but still get a diversified portfolio. It is possible, you know, it, 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 there's, there's nobody saying that a trend-following trading system must include silver. If it doesn't include silver, it's not a trend-following trading system. You know, sometimes you have to do without if this is what your account allows you to do. Yeah, I mean, I just had a quick look. I trade gold, and uh, I think that has a cash vol, which is about a third that of silver. And obviously, those two are going to be pretty correlated. So, um, and there is a gold mini and a gold micro contract. And I think, as yeah. far as gold is concerned, I'm not sure, but I, I remember I once looked at them, and, and, and those smaller contracts I think are liquid. So you could get some exposure from gold, but obviously, gold and silver aren't the same. You know, sometimes they, you know, uh, behave like brothers that like each other and sometimes they hate each other and they do completely different things. Yeah. I mean, this is the perennial problem for people with smaller amount of capital, which I've returned to again and again, because, yeah, relative to you guys, I'm now trading with, with a lot less capital and um, you just can't trade everything. Yes. And, and you know, but but one point of that, I think there is there's probably two ways of going about that. And, and one would be to say... Um, I will go into the micro and the mini contracts, which, which by the way, do exist, right? And some of them are less liquid. And um, it's kind of like you have, to, you have to just accept that fact. But then you could trade more markets and get more diversification in that trend following portfolio. Or you say, I'm just 
fine with trading a smaller number of markets. I mean, you do get, there are CTAs out there that trade 25 markets and they've never traded, they've never increased the number of markets to more than 25, right? And and, and they they are more rough, I guess, right? They're, they're not, certainly not as diversified as a portfolio of 55 or 60 or 80 markets, but still 25 markets, if you pick them cleverly, uh, you get some good diversification benefit out of that, right? There's going to be some bonds, some effects, some equities, some currencies, and um, pick them from different regions around the world and you'll get some diversification. I, you know, like I said, I think it can be done in a better way, but there's nothing wrong. I mean, really, I, I mean, that does, it, it's okay to trade a trend-following trading system with 25 markets. It would be better to trade it with 40, but it's not impossible to do it with 25. Yeah, I think we should title this episode Groundhog Day because we've done vault targeting, we've done how many markets you have in your portfolio. So it's uh, it's things we've talked about before and a point I'm not sure I've made before, maybe I have, but for me, if I look at things like the micros and the minis, I trade the mini S&P as it happens. That's probably now more liquid than the big contracts. It I is, guess. since many years, yeah. Yeah, but um, often when you step down to the micros and the minis because the, the contract size is changing the costs, trading costs will increase, basically, on a risk-adjusted basis. And so you have to probably then trade them more slowly than you could the full-size contract. So you've, you've then got a choice, essentially, to reframe what Moritz said between either losing diversification across markets or losing diversification across time. And, uh, you know, probably my gut feeling is that normally it's better to have diversification across markets. That's a more valuable thing to have than diversification across time because it does give you more diversification. So assuming they are liquid and assuming they're not that really expensive, then it is probably worth looking at these micros and minis. And it's probably worth revisiting it every now and then because, you know, the micro um, S&P got launched, I think, about three years ago. And to begin with, it was definitely liquid enough. But now perhaps it's worth revisiting it and seeing if liquidity is improved because, you know, futures contracts get introduced and the liquidity to begin with is normally very poor and then over time will hopefully go up. So it is worth looking at these things again. Sure. I want to shift gear before we wrap up today's conversation. And I'll, I'll put it in a little bit of context because Rob actually sent a chart to Moritz and me before we started recording today of three different systems with three different speeds that I want him just to talk a little bit about because actually the chart is a bit surprising to me. But anyway, before we jump into that, because it will, the topic is about speed and therefore short-term trading systems versus medium-term versus longer-term. But I did pick up a little bit of chatter this week that some participants in the markets have noticed and maybe a little bit concerned about the rapid growth of certain managers in the short-term space. Clearly, short-term has been a good place to be. So performance has been fine, and it's been correlating very well with uh, with what's happening in equity markets. And of course, what we often see is that good performance will be followed up by uh, large asset flows, at least to to uh, some managers. So I, I was just it was interesting to me that there was uh, a little bit of chatter about we need to be careful not seeing too much inflows into the short-term space uh, following the success that it's had, at least up until end of August. I think September was a bit rough for short-term managers as well. But uh, Rob, what you did a backtest here of some different speeds, I have to say it surprises me to see the difference in performance between short-term being pretty much negative since 
1985 until now, uh, even though there was a bit of a pickup in uh, March of this year. And then on the other side, you see some very um, nice sloping, upward sloping performance numbers from medium term trend models and fast trend models. Tell me a little bit about more about this and um, and if you have any guess as to why it looks so dire for the for the short term model. This is where we, you know, we really should be doing a webcast, not a podcast, Moritz, because then, you know, we could see the, the chart. I'm going to now have to try and describe a chart um, verbally, which is never easy. But also we'd be able to see all Moritz's monitors that he has behind him and how handsome you are, Niels. Many people don't realize that your caricature on the website just doesn't do you justice. So uh, maybe we should think about, you know, diversifying into video. I don't know what you guys think. What did you have for breakfast, Rob? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I'm not sure it's just the breakfast that... Uh... Too much coffee. Too much coffee. Um, yeah, so seriously. Yeah, so I did a really simple back test. It was actually for uh, another presentation uh, someone asked me to do. And what I did was just take three pairs of moving average crossovers, a couple that were pretty quick, a couple that were kind of medium speed, and a couple that were pretty slow. So in terms of holding period, maybe think about this, the fast bucket having a holding period of a few days the medium bucket being kind of in the week region, weeks region, and the slow one being kind of probably a, some into sort of a few months. And the the medium and the slow actually had, and this goes back to 1970, which is when my data set starts, the medium and the slow have pretty, you know, reasonable, consistent performance the whole time. Um, the fast um, does pretty well until about 1985, 1990, I think it is. And then it kind of levels off and goes flat. And then obviously when you take costs into account, because of the fast is trading quicker, costs more money to trade, the costs are higher, you basically see a pretty steady negative slope. So the, you know, for the last, so what would be back to 85, the last 35 years, the, the medium and the slow have done reasonably well. We know obviously trend falling goes in and out of fashion and there's been periods when it hasn't done so well. But the fast has consistently lost money. But then there's this really noticeable spike in March of this year, and it really just stands out on the graph uh, as a real anomaly. And it just was kind of very striking how probably the first few months of this year has been the would have been the only time when this particular implementation of fast trend following would have been profitable. So yeah, it was that that was the the, the sort of striking part of the image for me. But but uh, I guess the the wider message is just when things a strategy that, that's had a long track record like trend falling is, does have a bad couple of years. It is sometimes helpful to kind of zoom out and look at that long-term performance chart and say, yeah, well, we've been here before and it, it has come back. If it consistently made money every year, it would be a, a two, two and a half sharp ratio strategy, which it clearly isn't, um, and then probably a more crowded market. I mean, there's no doubt that your chart is showing few periods where the medium and longer term performance has been flat for you know even for five years and that's probably what we've seen now also in the last five years not a lot of managers have really made money but as you say this is not unusual that's just part of the game and Morris and I actually did a segment on this last week when we talked about some of the sectors and some of the markets that have caused this things like currencies have been pretty awful to trade at least the way we trade it for the last few years. Equities for the last two years has been pretty bad, pretty rough. And I think even some of the grains have been quite tricky in the last few years. So that's part of the game and that's why we diversify because we've had other things in the portfolio that have done okay. 
I am surprised a little bit, but I, I, I take your point about cost and all of that. That, And admittedly, I, I can really only think of a few short-term managers that have done well for a long period of time. And uh, as I said earlier on, the danger is that you suddenly see an influx of money into these strategies and then they start to perform poorly. So how should I put it? The humbleness of a, of a manager to know when to say stop in terms of inflow is really important if they want to maintain their historical performance. And uh, it is rare. It is rare that you see people actually sticking to it. Interestingly enough, a little bit away from the CTA space, I did hear an interview with, I think it's Paul Marshall of Marshall Walsh, the uh, very large, I think largest European hedge fund um, of about almost 50 billion. Marshall Weiss. Sorry yeah, Marshall Weiss. Yeah. So Paul Marshall was talking about part of their success and actually what he was mentioning specifically was the fact that on many occasions, not only had they closed their funds, they'd actually send money back to reduce the size and then found other ways, other products to then build the overall size of the company. But on a strategy by strategy level, part of their success was the fact that they never allowed the strategy to overstep uh, its capacity. And I think that's a very, very valid point. And unfortunately, we see examples of, of the opposite happening more often, I would say. We're not going to name names, though, are we? Nielsen? No, we're not going to name any names today. Um, Although we have to be careful with you and all that coffee. Um, <laughs> you might you might spill a few beans here. Another another example of a manager that, that closed a long time ago on the most successful fund, of course, is Rentec, our friends at Rentec, yeah. who basically followed a similar approach, which is to not take money in the successful strategy and then launch a whole bunch of other things to diversify. Yeah, I have mixed feeling about that approach because they've kept all the good stuff to their employees and themselves and kind of left the the public with a slightly different product. So I have mixed feeling about that, but you can't take anything away from their success, of course, but there are different ways of dealing with capacity, I guess. Yeah. Any final thoughts, guys? Or maybe you want to think about it for a second. Let me just quickly run through. There has obviously only been two trading days of October so far. And one of them, we don't even have specific numbers because we don't see them until Monday. But as of Thursday, at least, slightly down beginning uh, for the beta 50 index, down 23 bips, down 1.6% for the year. The CT, uh, the SOCGEN CTA index was flat uh, the first day, but still down 3.3% for the year. Trend index was flat on the first day of the month, down 2% for the year. Short-term traders index was slightly down, up 2% for the year. The uh, SOCGEN multi-alternative risk premium index, which is a bit of a mouthful, down 50 bips for the beginning of October, but still down 13 and a quarter percent for the year. MSCI World Index was down, and this is actually as of yesterday, last night, Friday, down 20 bips so far this month and flat for the year. Um, government bonds so far this month, also pretty flat. Anything else that you want to bring up before we, uh, we wrap up? Yeah, I'm going to now use my powerful computer to re-optimize the correct amount of coffee to drink before the next podcast. So uh, yeah, I think that's probably the best best use of my time now. <laughs> I have one thing next time we have Rob on in, in about a month's time. Um, there's one thing that maybe we can discuss about the ATR versus volatility calculations. There's, I believe, one one small shortcoming of an ATR calculation vis-a-vis 
fall and using the standard deviation of log returns. But I'll, I'll send that to you, Rob, and then we can bring it up next time we're together on the show and speak about that detail, which I think is an important detail, which many people overlook. And it is important in a single instance, but it is it becomes smoothed out and, and very unimportant over a larger portfolio of markets and when you repetitively use it. But I'll, I'll, I'll keep the uh, I'll keep the, the tension for that. Uh, yeah. we'll, we'll do that in a month time. I was just going to say, what a cliffhanger to end yeah. this uh, episode on. And, and by the we way... We should do cliffhangers uh, more often. By the way, Rob, uh, you might, in your next uh, simulation of coffee, you might also want to throw in decaf just, uh, just to see I'll what that... I'll diversify that might decaf work. as well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, could be. Could be just that. That does the trick. Anyways... Thanks, guys. Great conversation. Of course, to all of you, um, as you can hear, we do dive into pretty much detail when you send in our, your questions. So keep doing that. Uh, info at toptradersonplug.com is where you would send those to us. If you haven't uh, left us a rating and review, if you still feel like that, doing that after today's conversation on all sorts of funny topics, uh, please do so. They do help and we do read them and we do appreciate them. From Rob, Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, stay safe and be well. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.